I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which this recording takes place, the Gubby Gubby people of Southeast Queensland. I honour their continuing connection to land, sea and sky, as well as their elders, past, present and emerging. Hey there, welcome back to Men, Sex and Pleasure. I'm your host, Cam Fraser. This is episode number 147. We're talking all things masculinity, sexuality, male bodies and men's experiences of pleasure. And today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Seth Westhead. Seth Westhead is a proud father, husband, Aboriginal health researcher, men's mentor, and host of the Sentient Savage podcast. With family connections to the Awabakal and Wiradjuri nations in New South Wales, Seth draws on his ancestral knowledge systems and practices to guide his work as a multi-contextual space holder. Seth also holds a bachelor's degree in nutrition and physiology and a master's degree in public health, utilizing his deep understanding of the body and determinants of health to advocate for holistic approaches to health and well-being services and supports. Within his personal life, work and business, Seth strives to uphold the values of self-development, equity, agency, and personal sovereignty. You can find Seth on Instagram at s underscore Westhead, or on his website, which is sentientsavage.my.canva.site. And in this particular episode, the two of us talk about Seth's experiences as an Aboriginal man in the men's work industry, uh, the men's work spaces. So we cover topics like cultural appropriation, archetypes and Aboriginal mythology, and we also look at like personal accountability and integrity values that Seth holds in a really high regard for himself. So if you're interested in hearing Seth's perspective as an Aboriginal man in the men's work space, then this is definitely an episode for you. It was highly enlightening for me and I sincerely thank Seth for sitting down and educating me. Uh, I had a great time chatting with him and I hope you have a great time listening. Personal habits of body care or hygiene can have a lot to do with popularity and social success. Let me show you. So the next time that somebody wants you to go to bed with them, with or without a condom, then just picture that you're actually going to bed. It's not just you and him or you and her. It's that you're packing along a loaded revolver with you when you go. Boy, if you hung around with the guys I know, you, you wouldn't be able to stand it. They just talk about sex all the time. Seth, you and I can dive in. And the way that I like to start, man, is with a bit of an invitation. It's an invitation for you to share a bit about who you are, what it is that you do. And I'd also really like to know, what are you passionate about at the moment? Mm, Beautiful. Thanks, Cam. And thanks for having me on, man. Uh, My name's Seth Westhead. Uh, I have family connections to the Awabakal and Wiradjuri Nations in New South Wales, but I currently live on Ghana country in Adelaide. Been here for the last... Oh, 10 years now. Um, and I'm really privileged to be here and living, working, raising a family uh, in this beautiful place. I grew up in a town um, on the Murray River called Muldura, which is Barkindji and Lachi Lachi country. And that to me represents um, a really special place in that it's my grown community. I'm also a father. I have a 16 month daughter. Um, my partner and I. I've uh, been beautifully together for the last seven years. Relationships are fantastic and challenging and expansive. And um, that's been a beautiful journey with her. I also work as a Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health researcher. So I work in the space of adolescent health. My prior background to all of the research stuff was working in youth mentoring. So I've done a lot of work. 10 plus years working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people with a big focus on social, emotional well-being, cultural well-being, and just making sure that, you know, young people have the things that they need to really thrive and and grow up and and head towards the things that they want in life. I also do some men's work. So I've been a facilitator in a good friend of ours and and a mentor of mine, Tully O'Connor, his IMLP program. I went through that program myself before my daughter was born and then started moving into facilitating in that space and then more formally holding space 
for men. So I do that. I hold space for men in, in different capacities. Uh, I also have a podcast, which I love. It allows me to just have really fruitful conversations with different guests. And that's, I suppose, a little bit about me in terms of what's really present for me at the moment. I suppose I'll answer this a bit more personally. Last year and the last two years for me through my partner's pregnancy and the birth of my daughter was a time of really deep emotional maturity and setting the foundations for the life that I wanted and also the man that I wanted to become. And I feel like there's been a lot of transformation, hard-earned transformation, I should say, that has now put me in a position where I can be more of, of a comfortable and confident space holder for others. I feel in my life there's been this kind of trajectory of go through something, understand it personally, and then come out the other end and be able to hold space for others. And it's something that is really alive for me and has been for a, for a while is this idea of being first, leading the charge, stepping into the fire, whether that be physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, whatever, coming back with the gold. So that idea of the, the hero's journey, sort of journeying into the depths and coming back and sharing the treasures with the people. <laughs> mm, a beautiful, man. Thank you for sharing. And, you know, you mentioned holding space there a few times. And, um, and you know, I kind of have an idea of what that means, but I'm just curious to know, like, what is, what is holding space? mean for you? What does that look like? Holding space has been something that's evolved and taken many different roles, you know, throughout my life, my working career, um, my business, those sorts of things. And I suppose that it can look a little bit different for each person, but essentially when I think about it and boil it down, what does holding space means? Well, it, it, it means being present and aware, listening with intent while someone else talks about the things that are going on for them. And it doesn't have to be in a professional or a therapeutic capacity. I mean, holding space could be simply listening to your partner after you've asked the question around how was your day, right? That's an invitation to, one, hear somebody else's experience and, two, an opportunity for you to hold space. So every time you ask a question that's, I mean, not a closed-ended question. Essentially, what you're doing is holding space. It's more than just listening or simply waiting to speak, which I think <laughs> a few of us get caught up in, but it's really being attentive to not only the language that somebody uses, the words that they're speaking, but the body language, the feelings, the emotions that they're expressing, perhaps understanding a little bit more of the context of their life and what they're dealing with. So in a professional sense, I've held space as a youth mentor in an almost counselling role. I'm not a counsellor, so I should just say that. Yet some of the roles that come up in youth mentoring do require a level of understanding and, yeah, an understanding of perhaps like mental health and in a traditional sense or in a counselling sense. Holding space, I would say, again, is more broad than that. I've done it in a research capacity where that I'm interviewing somebody on maybe a, a potentially difficult topic that, that could be something like palliative care in, in a cancer diagnosis or somebody's journey through palliative care or it could be someone's journey uh, within traditional psychology settings or psychotherapy, what that's looked like. Um, somebody's experience within the healthcare system, be it positive or negative. And as a researcher, we hold space in that way and we're bound by a, a set, I guess, set of principles around ethics. And then there, it goes beyond that in terms of Aboriginal health research. There's a set of ethics in, in and around working with our communities. So that's probably more in a professional sense and not that, Holding space for men is not professional. And I, I do take a lot of my learnings from working with young people and also working with participants within research and the ethics that I've learned and integrated through there into my work, working one on one with men. So I'm not a psychologist. I, I don't have a degree 
necessarily in mental health. I do have a degree. I have a bachelor in nutrition and physiology and also a master's in public health. And again, like I said, have had fair, fair amount of experience talking and holding space or, you know, listening to people and holding them in their difficulties and challenges, but also their successes. So when it comes to the work I do with men, I suppose it's creating a container in which people feel comfortable to express all that they are, all that they're going through, which then leads to opportunities for deep, deep reflection and um, transformation, really. So, I mean, that's quite long-winded, but I think that paints a picture of how I have held space across a few different dimensions. It definitely does, man. And, and what I didn't say, but um, what I was thinking was uh, holding space in different capacities, right? And that's kind of what you have beautifully just described is all the different capacities that you hold space in. And something that, that came up, which I was curious around is, you know, the men's workspace is relatively unregulated, right? Like you can just call yourself a men's coach and start, quote unquote, holding space for men. And so I'm curious around like your experience doing that work holding space for other men if you rely on any principles or kind of unofficial ethics or guidelines in that men's workspace mm. and that's that's a great point because it is and i was having this conversation with someone actually might have been a couple of days ago. It may have been yesterday, but around this idea of regula- uh, regulation, and they were a mental health clinician. And so my thoughts around that, I mean, first off, I will say, yes, there are a set of principles that I kind of live and operate by that inform what I will do and what I won't do and, and the level of care or, or the types of things that I will delve into with someone and, and in some other ways might suggest more of a professional or traditional level of care. What I was saying to this person around regulation is that I'm not sure that that is necessarily the way forward in the sense that our medical system fails so many people, particularly in terms of mental health and well-being and understandings of what well-being is. The, the medical space, the health space is very clinical operates very much off a diagnostic basis and doesn't necessarily integrate the idea of a holistic lifestyle or holistic living. And being somebody who has worked in research and worked in science, I also know how difficult and how long it takes for research to be translated into practice. So something that we might find out through a piece of research may not even get translated into tangible benefits or clinical practice. So the idea that clinical practice and clinical modes of of healing, of holding space are the best, most efficient, most effective, I, I can't agree with that. I don't think that's true. And also through the different modalities of healing that I've gone through in my life, I know that the structured system and regulation isn't always the best way to go. And we're starting to see, I think, an evolution of people wanting to explore. I I don't like the term alternative health because, I mean, it makes it sound like it's alternative to a gold standard, and it's not. It's just alternative to what's available through a regulated clinical system. And in many cases, it's better. Uh, And so I feel that people are, are... coming to a a realization that the clinical space doesn't have the answers that they're looking for, doesn't have the type of care that they're looking for or all the exploration. Uh, And they're reaching, I would say, first off to things like, you know, books, self-help books, self-development, personal development, maybe in terms of spirituality, getting an interest in that and then saying, okay, I feel like I can't do this on my own. I'm going to seek out somebody to help guide me. And I think that's just a natural principle, right? It's like, I don't know. Well, I'm going to go and look and for somebody to guide me. I think where it gets a little bit tricky is the way people may advertise themselves as a guide uh, and the lens in which people are looking 
at that through. So social media has a lot of bells and whistles. You can make really attractive, beautiful content. It doesn't necessarily mean you're the right person to, you know, work through somebody's challenges in their life. And so, but I do fundamentally believe that people have an ability to use discernment and make decisions of their own free consent. So I'm of the belief that people, when given the opportunity, can make informed decisions. And uh, I believe that everybody has the capacity to do that. So I don't think I should take away somebody's capacity to choose whether I you know, work with this person or that person. And I suppose as people do explore working with someone, they need to be aware of or, or have an understanding of integrity and what integrity looks like for them and maybe the person that they're working with. So now I'm moving into what kind of guides me in, in the way that I work with people and it's offer a basis of integrity and what that looks like for me is not overstepping my professional bounds in the sense that if somebody has disclosed, then I will ask if they've got a diagnosed mental health condition or psychiatric condition, or maybe they've contemplated uh, suicide or uh, are engaged in self-harm practices, well, then I would 100% recommend that they see a clinical person, be that a psychologist, a psychiatrist, maybe a, an alternative form of therapist within the system. And unfortunately, that's a little bit of a safety, you know, for me too. I, I have my own insurances, but in terms of making sure that person is held um, elsewhere outside of me, I'll also try and understand what that person's support system looks like outside of myself. So does that person have a partner? Do they have children? What's their sort of relationship with their family like? And you walk in this line between wanting to be with someone and hold space for them and offer maybe something that you can offer them without saying, I'm going to be, you know, your be all and end all. I'm going to be your savior. And then I suppose if there, it does come to a point where somebody is no longer really benefiting from you know, the services that I might be providing, then again, it's that encouragement to seek further assistance in some of the challenges that they're dealing with. But I think just, again, going back to the, and and I mean the, the ethics that I operate in terms of Aboriginal health research, which is deeply embedded in a human-first approach, be there present with the person, seek to understand where they are, have empathy for their situation. I mean, where I feel like this can be more helpful than maybe some of the traditional clinical practices is where clinical practices are held up with some red tape that says, oh, no, I can't do this, I can't do that, out of fear of scrutiny, as opposed to maybe something that has boundaries that are a little more flexible in maybe the the coaching space. Thanks, man. I appreciate the unpacking there. I could see you as you were sharing like, oh, then there's also this as well. So I appreciate you kind of letting those cogs turn and and unpacking um, whilst you were talking. And uh, there was a few things in there that like definitely I want to circle back around to like, you know, I don't necessarily think like the unregulatedness of the industry is necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think it allows, as you kind of closed on, it allows for like exploration and stuff where like if you were in a clinical setting you wouldn't be able to do right because there is regulation there and i often think of like you know the psychedelic space right or even like the sexuality space is still very unregulated like tantra sacred sexuality all these like you know very alive and um expansive spaces like there's some cool shit happening in those spaces right same thing with the coaching industry there's some cool stuff that just wouldn't get which just wouldn't get through the door if it was in a regulated space. So I, I don't inherently think the unregulation is is a bad thing. The, the the issue that pops up for me is like accountability. Like who's keeping coaches accountable if there's no body, professional body, right? So like that, and, and it's themselves keeping themselves accountable, right? Like you, you mentioned it's integrity. And so if they- I suppose it, it's also, I'll, I'll just 
say yeah. there, I, I feel like it's also to maybe the level of service that they're receiving. Because again, going back to that belief of mine that people have an ability to make decisions and, and have a fundamental right to make their decisions. I feel like if you're working with someone and start to go, well, this is pretty shit, you, you can, you have the option to just withdraw your money and say, I'm not paying for this. Like that is, that is there. And I think there's, there's a level of accountability that has to be on the person seeking the service as well as the person giving the service, right? Because if I, if I can say I'm working with someone and realize a little bit down, hey, this guy's pretty whack and I don't think I really align with what he's saying. And actually I've been working with him for a month now. My life's worse. You know, I, I have an ability to choose not to engage in that service. Like I, I am in a way the one who engaged with the service in the first place. So I, I do hold that belief too. Mm, yeah, and I, I do. I do agree with you that there is a like it's it's two people. It's a relationship, right? Like you know, you you have to have some level of responsibility and accountability on both sides. Um, and you know the it's when like the power imbalance is like taken into consideration, you know, like it's, and you know, you mentioned people making informed decisions and it's like, well, they've got to be informed first. You know what I mean? Like, and if the person who's doing the informing doesn't have that integrity or doesn't have that nuance or doesn't like, doesn't show all the information, right. To be fully informed, then they're not making an informed decision. You know? And I think that's like, for me, what I want to try and strive for is like more of that, right. Is more like, let's get more, nuance to this information let's get like more depth to the information let's help people actually be fully informed when they do make those choices because i think you're right i think like it's empowering for clients to be able to make that choice and be like this sounds like what i need right now and i think it's important to say like it's not either or you know you, you kind of mentioned before like if someone and you'll screen for it if they have like some mental health issues or some like self-harm practices it's like you know they don't necessarily have to only work in the medical system they can work you know concurrently with a coach or with you know someone else who's doing complementary therapy right um or that quote-unquote alternative therapy but i think it's like important not to be binary as well it's like I, and i work with clients who do have counselors who do have relationship therapists who do have you know uh, a, a urologist that they speak to because i've got some like specific physical function problems that i don't work with um so i think it's important to recognize that it's like it's all complementary. It's not like one or the other. And we love to do that, right? We love to compartmentalize and be like, well, it's either this or that and there's no in between. Um, and so that's why I think it's like that nuance and that, that beautiful like collective approaches or that holistic approach is really important. And it, it, that reminds me of like, uh, I was doing, um, so I did my, my, my high degree in, um, at Curtin in sexology and we did like a public health unit. And one of the women that came in there, and I, for the life of me, cannot remember her name, unfortunately, but she ran a government-funded public health service in rural Western Australia, so with um, Aboriginal communities in Western Australia. And there was a there was like a, a standard of of care or standard of practice booklet that was created, which she shared with me, which was done in conjunction with elders from from specific areas and. The, the book was called Murich Marmon, which was, um, from what I can remember, the Noongar words for good men, I believe. And the book had like this, the first page of it was this kind of like collective approach to like how to work with men. And several things on there were specifically not in like the Western medical model, right? And it was like community, spirituality, and culture. Right, and it's and you know, and, and obviously those things are are you know important, you know, for for working with Aboriginal folks. But like, I think in general, those things are really missing from like our capacity to to heal, right, and to 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 grow. So I don't know. I just wanted to share that as well because I, I felt like you know you were kind of touching on that. It's like these are the things that people come to like men's work for is for community, right? Is for like a group. You know, of people to connect with who to share similar lived experiences, right? It's to tap into a bit more of a spiritual element, whether it's archetypical or whether it's, you know, through could could even be through religious. I know, I know, there's like some very deeply religious men's groups, you know, or it could be through, you know, th through a um, culture oriented um, space as well. So, like, th I think that's like the the values and the the positives that come out of like this industry in this space which is like missing from 
that kind of Western medicine point of view. I don't know, just kind of like shooting, you know, spaghetti oh, against I, the wall right now. I lands. agree with you for sure. And the one thing I, I mean, I'm careful around guidelines because I work with young people primarily in the health research space and as, as part of one of the projects we have, we have a, a governance group of 18 young people from around the country, every state and territory is re represented, including the Torres Strait Islands. And I'm very mindful of coming out and creating a set of guidelines for young people because it then becomes a tick box and it doesn't become about finding the person who, in a way, innately or naturally can do that job or hold that space or create a container really well because it becomes something you can just teach you can go oh, i'll teach you these you know nine principles which can be important but it doesn't mean just because somebody knows these nine principles then in application they're the right person for the job you know you can naturally exude or apply principles of culture safety equity empathy those sorts of things without knowing that they're the things that you're implementing or operating by and so i do think there needs yeah there's i'm, I'm a bit mindful of saying you know these guidelines are gospel or this is what we should follow yet i do also see the benefit and i see the benefit of both yeah and then i suppose just i wanted to touch back on you know the, the regulation and the informed consent part because it is such a big part of research and, and in the medical and health world which is very highly regulated and and so let's just take those two as maybe juxtapositions to one another you've got the medical very regulated model of care and you've got maybe the coaching industry that's probably the the polar end of the spectrum even so that the medical industry is so heavily regulated you still you still get people going through a quote-unquote informed consent process going into hospital, being put under the knife, waking up and they've lost their kidney and they wake up going, what the fuck just happened? And that's because that even the idea of informed consent there is very westernised and it's very, you know, you need to sign this form and read this form and I've explained to you whether or not it's in my medical jargon, well, that's up to me as a healthcare professional. Uh, or people are getting you know, written scripts for medication and being told by a medical professional that, you know, this is what you should be on because of the conditions you've got without a full understanding of really what the person's going through. And I saw a, a post the other day that says, if your medical professional or practitioner doesn't ask you about your sleep, your diet, your stress levels, and prescribes you something, you don't have a healthcare professional, you've got a drug dealer. And I mean, it, I've, there's, there's been a situation recently that I've been aware of where that happened. You know, somebody rang up for a particular reason and within five minutes, a doctor was trying to prescribe antidepressant without even acknowledging or understanding this person's medical history. And it's just, it's insane. So this idea that, you know, like one industry is regulated and good versus one industry is unregulated and bad. And this is where I, I and fully on board with your you know, suggestion for more nuance and more understanding because the world just isn't black and white. It's completely gray, yeah, completely yeah. gray. <laughs> yeah, I, I did like a couple of solo episodes of my podcast over the Chrissy break. And um, one of the things I spoke about, one was about premature ejaculation, the other was about erectile dysfunction. And the, one of the things that I, I really try and heavily emphasize is like the over-medicalization of those two things, right? Like people are prescribing SSRIs for premature ejaculation and people are prescribing Viagra for what, well, you know, Tadalafil or Sedanafil for erectile dysfunction. And like, I have a prescription for erectile dysfunction because I went through the process and was not vetted. I lied on my form. It was all through online stuff. And now I've got fucking pharmaceutical you know, prescription for this drug that I don't need, but because I wasn't checked in on, no one really, you know, because they're, they're trying to make money. They're trying to sell pills, right? So, so I agree with you. I agree with you that it's, yeah, very over-medicalized and, and the pharmaceutical industry is, yeah, a bit of a, that's a whole nother thing. Hey there, thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just wanted to chime in here with a 
plug for my online men's course. It's called Outperform a Porn Star. It goes for six weeks and it's all about experiencing multiple orgasms, overcoming any uh, sexual dysfunctions, reframing your whole performance mindset around sex to be more pleasure-oriented. We talk about communicating with your partner, being a sexual leader, and all of this amazing stuff. So if you're interested in learning how to outperform a porn star, head to my website, www.cam-fraser.com. Let's get back to this episode. This is an observation I've made, and possibly this just could be because of the spaces that I've been in and maybe my own projection or on my own bias, but I haven't really noticed a whole lot of Aboriginal men in the men's work spaces. In fact, I would probably say that you are the first Aboriginal man that I've come across who is like actively participating in the space. And again, that might be a bias, might be just be the spaces I've been in. But I wanted to to kind of ask you about that, man, is like, you know, coming from a, a space where you are working with, you know, Aboriginal young people, and you know, it's, and it's kind of specifically for them to like a space where men's work is kind of for all men, right? But like, kind of noticing a specific demographic of men are showing up in those spaces, right? It's kind of like middle class white dudes. Why do you think that is? I'm just curious to, to get your thoughts. Why it is, I don't know. I'm, I'm. We'll speak to my observations as well because I mean, yeah, it's kind of. I do feel like I, I haven't come across any other Aboriginal fellows who are in this space doing this you know, the men's workspace or even being vocal about um, maybe the the journey of personal development, self-development. And I should probably start by how I got, you know, how that was something that I got tangled up in. And really from a very early age, I was very inquisitive and interested and introspective around, you know, why do I do what I do? Why do I believe what I believe? And I think as a... An Aboriginal young person growing up, I, I went to a predominantly white school. Although I had connection to the community, majority of my friends at school and growing up were non-Aboriginal. And so that gives you a, an opportunity to question your own identity in a space and where you fit. So I think it naturally lends itself to a level of introspection. And there's also you know, historical trauma, which is kind of placed upon you and then where you sit in not only your own life and your family, but then in a wider cultural um, national sense, right? You have these multiple layers of your identity. And I should also say that Aboriginality and my Aboriginality is not a political identity. My Aboriginality is a spiritual and cultural identity by which I have a deep connection to my ancestral lines, my family, a sense of beautiful obligation to the Aboriginal community at large. Wherever I am a visitor, I try and work in those spaces and give back to the community. Also, an innate connection to the land, to the animals, to the plants, And I think it gives me a very fortunate and privileged vantage point to be able to tap into some of the things that maybe other cultures or or people coming from other cultures don't necessarily have because it's not as readily available. And so, yes, I feel like I am one of the only Aboriginal men in this space. If there's other fellas out there who are listening to this, who are familiar with your work, Cam, or know of me in some capacity, reach out because I would love to speak to you and, you know, in some capacity work together. I think that would be beautiful. And, yes, the demographic that I'm seeing come through the men's workspaces tends to be a a particular demographic that isn't Aboriginal men. Perhaps one consideration could be that Aboriginal men find it hard to reach out and ask for help. I think. A lot of men struggle with that. It's not uh, an Aboriginal-specific thing. The other thing might be the fact that there's no representation in the coaching space, right? So people don't feel comfortable connecting with someone who may not understand their individual context or their collective context, their identity. And I suppose that's 
you know, true too. If you're, you're a woman and you want to speak to someone, you're looking for another woman to speak to. Or if you're a man, you're looking for another man to speak to. It's, it's about understanding that identity context. I've also felt, experienced and seen the tremendous benefit of some of the modalities that people can access outside of the medical system. So I'm a massive advocate for coaching of any type of exploration of the self physically mentally spiritually psychologically personal development i mean it's one of my highest values and i would encourage anybody and everybody to try at least something or at least for a period of time build their toolbox with skills of stress management communication dealing with conflict those sorts of things i just think they're fundamental things that yeah, if we maybe had more understanding of, we'd be in a lot better position collectively, I'm saying there. So uh, one of my aspirations too is sort of to be there as a presence for other Aboriginal men to say, look, if you would like to step into this space or you're interested, then I'm here. All right, let's, let's talk. It doesn't mean you have to work with me, but let's speak together because it, it could be something that resonates with you. And I, I find that Unfortunately, uh, a lot of people, and I've seen this through my research, a lot of Aboriginal people, they engage with the medical system, don't get the answers that they're looking for, feel very burnt out, aren't necessarily getting the answers from their community and then go, fuck, I don't know where to look. And I suppose, yeah, this, this sort of industry or the complementary health industry provides a potential other avenue. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for unpacking that, man. And, you know, something that's, that is coming up for me as well is like I kind of noticed two things with regards to like practices and men's workspaces. The first is like this it comes from like the mythopoetic men's movement of like America and Europe. And it's quite like you know Eurocentric. Like the even like the archetypes, for example, like a lot of them are drawn from that kind of European ancestry or lineage, if you want to call that, or like, you know, um pantheon of 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 gods. Um and then like the other kind of side of the practices that I notice is kind of like some might call it appropriation, right? Or some might call it an, an appreciation, right? Depending on what side of the kind of coin you, you land on of indigenous practices. And, and so I'm, I'm wondering, again, just from your own personal experience and perspective, and like a question that pops up here, for example, is like, you know, take the archetypes, you know, if I can give you a concrete question, like, are there... Aboriginal archetypes, for example, that could be relevant to the men's work space and, and specifically maybe for Aboriginal men, for them to do work, you know, with other guys working with other types of archetypes, maybe there's some that resonate with them a bit more. I don't know. That's just kind of like something that popped up for me as I was sharing, but just want to leave it there and see what you, what your thoughts are. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's two things in that part, right? It's obviously the, the appropriation piece, um, which I will speak to. And then there's the, the idea of an archetypical model. And I know, you know, because we've had discussions about this, I'm a big fan of the archetypical model and, and you're not so much. And I think that's really cool. The reason I am a fan is because regardless of where the archetypes stem for, the idea of an archetype is that it's universal to all people. And in my experience, although it may have originated from a, a Eurocentric perspective, it still very much has relevance to culture and, and archetypes across, you know, the the human experience. And I think that's why they're really powerful is because they do speak and resonate with so many different people. Now, if I, t you know, the idea, let's take right back to the archetypical idea of a mother and a father. Well, every single human being who is born had, you know, a, a mother and a father. So, that, I mean, as an archetypical idea, it's anchored in a, a level of realistic reality, you know, truth or biological truth, I suppose, in the fact that everybody stems from, from a mother and a father. And then that gets transposed to these archetypical ideas of maybe the mother earth, father sun, father sky, which is relevant in, in Aboriginal culture too. I should also say, I only speak from one experience of an Aboriginal person, that being an Aboriginal man, with my own journey and, and expressions of my Aboriginality. So I by no means speak of 
you know, the Aboriginal experience as homogeneous in any sort of way because it's not. There's an incredible amount of diversity. And just to highlight that, pre-colonisation, uh, pre-contact, there was over 250 distinct language groups and over 500 dialects, each with their own unique expressions, practices, culture, belief systems. So again, to just hammer that home, that's greater than the diversity of Europe. So just appreciate that level of diversity. And now we get to today where it's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and we all get lumped under, you know, one banner or one flag. And while it's a beautiful symbol of unity, I think sometimes the diversity of the Aboriginal community can get uh, mixed up in that. Now, going back to the, the archetypical model, you know, in my experience and my cultural learnings, it, it does definitely resonate the idea of a warrior, again, an archetypical model, the, the idea of a magician or a mystic or a shaman or a medicine man or a medicine woman, again, still very much um, plays there. The idea of a, a, a trickster, that not necessarily being the idea of a jester or a court joker, but that being somebody who is cheeky, manipulative, sneaky. Those sorts of stories 100% exist in Aboriginal culture and are maybe highlighted more so through animals um, rather than the idea of uh, gods maybe live up on a cloud or live up on the mountain. But this idea, uh, Aboriginal mythology, from my understanding and my experience and cultural uh, learnings, is very much tied to from what I can see through other Native cultures, Native American, Inuit, Canadian First Nations, is very much tied to land, animals, and those sorts of relationships. You know, the, the idea of a trickster might be represented in a willy wagtail and that being an archetype or a representation for the trickster for example so yeah I, I i definitely definitely feel like there's crossover and again just the the reason i love the archetypical model is because from what i can tell it's universal i'm, I'm yet to find somebody that doesn't res resonate with an element of, of at least those archetypes. It doesn't have to be the whole thing, but it's an element. And I mean, the other thing too, as an Aboriginal person, I, I love stories. My culture is narrative. It's never written. It's idea of storytelling, song lines of story. And so perhaps that's why it resonates so deeply with me, because it is this idea of a narrative and a story and a myth, something that contains deep truth. I do appreciate you sharing that insight with regards to animals because it, it reminds me of, I'm not sure if you've read Tyson Yunker Porter's book, Sand Talk, but he he uses the emu quite a lot in his, and I, I was lucky enough to listen to it on Audible and Tyson at the beginning of the Audible recording says, this is the way the book is supposed to be digested is through listening to it because that's you know as an aboriginal man he's like you know very similar to what you're sharing is is all that narrative and story so yeah he has this really beautiful uh through line of the of the emu and it being like always in a hurry and rushing and and uses it as like a archetypal kind of story i suppose to to get a, get some points across so yeah so i i do really appreciate you speaking into that man and I am mindful of, of time with regards to you know, speaking into archetypes. We could be here for a while talking about that. So I would love to get your opinion on appropriation, appreciation. Yeah, for sure. And this is something that I've been quite open in speaking about. So if people want to further understand you know, my perspectives on that and maybe understand my story a little more in terms of my family history and where I'm coming from, I've got a podcast episode out around it, it, it called uh, Not Your Didge, Not Your Drum, and specifically speaks to the appropriation of cultural practices. In, I'm going to go listen to it, man. Thank you for yeah, sharing. No worries. Um, also on my socials, I've done a few posts around, you know, my expressions of my Aboriginality, but also cultural appropriation. And, and in there, I lay out some questions that people should ask themselves. And so maybe rather than going into specific practices that I feel like are appropriation, I would first say by if you are 
utilizing an indigenous practice from any culture other than your own, or you are playing a instrument that comes from an indigenous culture or background, I would first ask the question, have you been taught or gifted permission to learn said practice or play said instrument as a first question. The second question would be, do you have permission? Have you been gifted permission to use that said practice or play said instrument in a therapeutic space or in a therapeutic way or for healing? So any, any sort of way outside of pure entertainment. Have you also sought permission to be paid for using said practice or said instrument in a, a way in which you would financially gain? So whether that is for entertainment reasons or whether that is for a therapeutic sense or using it within a, a healing capacity. And then my last question would be, have you got permission to do all of that on the land on which you're on? So, for example, if I've grown up in one area, I've gained permission, I've sought consent. This is for, again, people who are not of that particular culture. I've gained consent. Uh, I've been gifted the opportunity. I've been gifted the permission to do this and be paid for this. But then I go from that place to somewhere else and just carry that permission with me like a, a passport. Sorry, that, that doesn't work. It's like you, you've got to go back and seek permission exactly the same way you did the first time to the place that you are now in. And for me, that's, that's the way it needs to be done. Anything else to me is appropriation. I will give a couple of examples of what that is. One is using a Native American medicine drum. Again, whether it's for entertainment purposes or whether it's in healing for your breath work, your sound journey, your cacao ceremony, your ecstatic dance, whatever, playing the dig, a non-Indigenous person playing the, the yiraki or the didgeridoo, and uh, other other things that maybe people aren't so aware of, like burning Native American sage and, and smudging in that sort of capacity. Yeah, that that's where I, I sit around the appropriation. Um, I feel that there is sometimes a bit of pushback around that with people saying, oh, look, I, I just respect everybody as one. And I don't see, you know, fundamentally, I believe we're all the same. And, you know, I'm just expressing my humanness. And I would say, look, on a philosophical level, I agree with you. I do fundamentally believe we are all one. We come from the same universal source, consciousness, G-O-D, uh, goddess, whatever you resonate with, whatever works for you. Yet, that doesn't mean that you disregard the human experience and all that the human experience encapsulates, right? I am here in an incarnation. I happen to be here in an incarnation of an Aboriginal man a straight Aboriginal man, and in that experience, I have certain privileges and obligations that I need to respect and play out. And and that's, in a way, my, you know, using more of a Taoist philosophy, that's my dharma or you know, Buddhist, that's my karma, right? That's what I'm here to do. It doesn't mean I go stomping all over you know, the representation of everybody else and say, oh, well, because fundamentally I'm you and you're me, well, then I have access to everything that you do. I find that's a, a deeply offensive form of spiritual bypassing, which unfortunately is rife. Where I'm also at with that is I could spend my time pulling up every single person that appropriates an element of my culture or I could spend my time releasing my views, speaking to my views on it, allowing people to go on their own growth journey. And if they choose to ignore that and appropriate, well, that's up to them. And then I would trust the people engaging in their services can see through maybe the limitations in their integrity or the, the spiritual bypassing that's 
being under is happening there. And what I can do is show up in the best way possible to, in a way, not appropriate, you know, my own culture or others' cultures. You know, so for me, as an Aboriginal man, even to play the Yiraki in a ceremonial context or an entertainment context and be paid for that, I need to go and seek permission from elders, leaders, traditional owners of the land that I'm on, because otherwise I'm taking away an opportunity and a fundamental cultural right from them. And if, if the other option is I just pay them to do it, not me. And, and I think that's another way of going about it. If you want to appreciate and include these practices, appreciating Aboriginal culture first starts from appreciating Aboriginal people. You can't have one without the other. I, I will, one more thing I will say is I don't believe in the, the public shaming or attacking of somebody. I, I feel like the way to maybe approach it first is by engaging in a dialogue with that person privately educating them, providing an opportunity for them to learn from somebody that maybe what they're doing is offensive or appropriating. And then if they're, they're not prepared to learn or grow from that, that's probably where I choose to disengage and say, okay, uh, I will take that in my stead and the way that maybe I communicate about that person then changes. It doesn't mean I go out of my way to publicly shame, attack, humiliate that person. I certainly don't agree or align with that. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thank you for speaking into that. And this is, you know, somewhat tangential. And I, I mentioned this to you before we jumped on the podcast, but I, I just finished this book and the name of the book is called Grog War. And it was it, essentially it documents, it chronicles the about a decade long span from the 1980s to the 1990s of the Aboriginal community in Tennant Creek, which is in the Northern Territory. And I apologize, I can't remember the name of the land or the country, but the a, a council was set up. Uh, Jalalikari Council was set up, which was from local Aboriginal people. And the essentially the, the, there was a fight between the Aboriginal community at large with the proprietors of alcohol in that town, Tennant Creek. And the the you know the reason why I bring this up is because something that you said before is like, you know, we we're all kind of we're all one, you know, this kind of you know philosophical you know thing. And that that was kind of a a rhetoric that was leveraged in this fight between the Supplies of alcohol, right? The bars, the hotels, you know, the distributors against like the Aboriginal community. There was this kind of idea that, look, we're all, we all have the right to drink. We all, you know, I live in here, you know, you, you know, trying to put alcohol restrictions on is just kind of like, essentially it's like going to cancel, you know, our right to, to, to sell alcohol and our right to make a living and our right to do all this stuff. And it's like, and we, and we all have that and you've got the right to like not buy things. And, and it was, and so eventually after like 10 years, the, the, this kind of like self-determination movement ended up banning the, the alcohol. I mean, and not banning, it wasn't a total ban. I don't want to give that impression, but they like got some restrictions in place with regards to like the sale of certain alcohol or the times that bars are allowed to be open or the days that they are allowed to be open. And it was, you know, and, and it had a great positive net impact on the community, you know, for Aboriginal folks and non-Aboriginal folks. And, and it was just like this really eye-opening story of like how, especially during that time of Australia as well, because like only 10 years before that in the seventies was when like Aboriginal folks were, it was kind of like finally written into legislation that they could be paid the same amount as non-Aboriginal folks, you know? And like, and so that it's just, yeah, it was a mental kind of like story to kind of read and, and understand as a white dude in Australia, having never been really taught that. Um, and so I uh, just want to like plug that book if anyone's interested in that kind of history. It's all been repealed now, you know, like none of those restrictions are in place anymore, you know, 20 years later, which is a little bit saddening. Um, but one of the reasons why is because of this kind of like underlying philosophy is like, oh, you know, we all have the same rights, you know, and like kind of a bit like, well, fuck the 
indigenous population that want to like advocate for themselves and try and make decisions about what's best for them. The establishment, the government, you know, the the big alcohol, all these people are kind of like, yeah, nah, fuck that pretty much. We all have a right to sell alcohol and you all have a right to buy alcohol and we're just going to, you know, operate on that front. I don't know. It feels, it feels related, man. I just feel like there's that underlying mentality there of like we're all the same and like we should just be able to do what we want but that doesn't work out very well for a lot of people and so i just wanted to yeah just share that i don't know where i was going with it but i just felt like it was tangentially relevant no i i can understand where that thread comes together and i mean that's why i said understanding that philosophical construct doesn't lead you to then discounting how things play out in reality and the diversity of human experience. Because if you say, well, we all have the right to buy alcohol, it's like, yeah, we all have the right to say, no, fuck off. We don't want you in our community, right? We have a right to that self-determination. So it sits there too. It's like, it's like, well, well, who's right stronger? My right to sell alcohol or, you know, my right to say, no, we don't want you here. Well, maybe then we follow the thread of human experience back to, well, who has authority in place? Well, from where I sit, probably the people that have been there for 60,000 years have authority in place. So, you know, it's not, it's not a hard, I think, thing to grapple with from where all one to, okay, let's respect the human experience. Okay. Let's find where the authority in this decision lies. Found that pretty quick, didn't we? <laughs> you know, like a company that's been around for a, a minuscule amount of time or a, a thread of the oldest living culture on the planet who says, actually, we don't want this. And it's not, it's not, and, and the fact that it even came to a compromise, you know, shows that there was even a level of humanness, well, on, on both sides to say, okay, well, this is what we're going to be happy with. And so, yeah, I think even having that philosophy philosophy as a um, underpinning doesn't necessarily mean that you can trample over things. And that's why I use that experience, uh, the, the example of culturally appropriating you know, practices or instruments. Look, I can't talk specifically into the community of, of Tennant Creek. I'm, I'm not from that community and I don't have a connection to that community, but I do 100% support the autonomy uh, and self-determination and sovereignty of communities to choose what they will and, and won't engage with on their land. The idea of something that's opposed or uh, opposed on or forced, I think, just fundamentally goes you know against that belief system that we all have a fundamental right to you know, be autonomous and be sovereign. On that, I, I do want to mention, you know, what sovereignty means to me because I know sometimes sovereignty is talked about a lot in a political sense. Where I got to, particularly over the last couple of years, I'm really understanding, you know, that my Aboriginality is not a political identity at some points in time it was, particularly when I was younger. I've grown into understanding that it's not that for me and that it is a cultural and a spiritual identity. And, and in that, my view and idea of sovereignty has changed. And my view and idea of sovereignty now is being able to make decisions for me and my family to live a life of meaning. So it doesn't necessarily mean for me a ejection from a colonial institution or the institution that is Australia, but rather it's me taking autonomous control of the things that I will and won't engage in. So sovereignty has actually been an internal process and realising that no one ever took my sovereignty no one can ever give me my sovereignty. Rather, I need to go through a process of uncovering that myself. So it's been a very 
reflective internal experience to then get to a place mentally. And you may, you could possibly say it was a, a decolonization of my own mind away from the stories that society, that the world, that my, um, my upbringing had placed on me to come to a place where now when I make decisions, it comes from a sovereign place. I'm not guided when I'm conscious of the decisions that I'm making. You know, sometimes we get caught up and it happens, um, but it comes from a place of, of me acting as a sovereign being, saying this is a conscious decision I'm making, this is where I want to head. So I suppose I, I want, I would love to be able to help and speak to more Aboriginal people in my capacity as a space holder in and around that process and how I went about doing that and how now for me, sovereignty, I get to exercise my sovereignty in every single decision that I make when I'm conscious of. Again, I, I didn't speak too much into, you know, your example of the book and, and mainly because I think if people want to read the book, they can go and get that. They can get that example and I'm not from that community. So. No, I appreciate your your uh, reframe of sovereignty for you personally. I think that's really beautiful and really introspective. And you know, I am mindful of time. I know I said that about 15 minutes ago, but I do really want to honor uh, the hour because I know we both have little ones um, that we need to get back to. But I wanted to uh, maybe close down. If you had any, I'm not really sure, man. I'm not really sure what I want to ask you. Is there any advice, I suppose? You know, I can't collect any analytics of how many Aboriginal folks are listening to this podcast. Um, so I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's, it's pertinent for me to ask you to speak to them directly, but maybe just some advice in general for people that are like curious about men's work. And maybe, you know, we've kind of thought about it a little bit more critically today than I think some people, you know, that participate in men's work kind of usually do. So maybe if there's like a, piece of advice around um, you know, people in the men's work industry taking it a little bit more critically or just unpacking it a little bit more. If there's any, any words of wisdom you wanted to share around that. Uh, and I, I can agree with that. I, I see that quite a lot because the journey of spirituality is beautiful, right? Like it's beautiful to start to see people as one. It's beautiful to start to see everybody as your brother and everybody as your sister and want this harmonious life where we can come back to a sense of community and universal love. And I fucking love that shit. Like I'm, I'm all for it, right? <laughs> but, sorry, and let's recognise the human experience and recognise that not everybody's experience on this planet is the same as ours. And in understanding our philosophies and the underpinnings of the way that we work, that we don't discredit and trample uh, trample on uh, other people's experience. And I think that's part of the spiritual journey also, and that's part of the spiritual path, that's part of self-development and the personal development space, is question everything. Continue to question, continue to reevaluate, see where your position, see where your privilege lies, see where you might be appropriated, and just seek to learn learn and grow because i mean that's why we're all doing this work i would say i haven't met one person who has been in this space that doesn't like to develop learn and grow you know let's just apply that let's let's apply that not just to the things that feel comfortable and i'm not just talking about an ice bath i'm talking about the beliefs that shape the way you look and interact with other people it's important it's really important and um See how it lands. An ice bath for your ideologies, huh? Like dive into a, uh, a a different belief system and see if that shakes you out of your comfort zone a little bit. And I, you know, I want to say, man, just uh, officially as well, I'm appreciative of our conversations behind the scenes on uh, Instagram as well. I've just been really enjoying that. So thank you for asking questions and for yeah, being someone to to be a bit of a mirror and reflect things back to me. It's been really nice to to have you. Um, in my life, man, for the last, oh, it must be about like six to six to eight months now, I suppose we've kind of known each other, which has been really lovely, man. So I'm, I'm really, uh, I feel really lucky to have you as someone in my, my field. So super appreciative of you, dude. Uh, and thanks for sitting down and just having a chat. I know we, we kind of kept it pretty casual and there wasn't a lot of like set questions. So 
hopefully people listening got some value from this, but I certainly did. So yeah, just um, really grateful, dude. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Hey there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Men, Sex and Pleasure podcast. If you find value from this content, then I encourage you to consider becoming a patron on my Patreon account. You can find the link for that in the description below. You have access to a whole bunch of perks, including behind the scenes podcast footage, as well as pre-release YouTube videos and patron-only writing, as well as the opportunity to have your name either shown in a YouTube video or read out in a thank you during the podcast. So like I said, if you enjoy this content and you'd like to support it and support me, then head to the link in the show notes below and consider becoming a patron. Thank you.